The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? There have been numerous headlines in recent days about what China could do to Taiwan, with warnings that if the US doesn't intervene, China might militarily take the country over within the near future. But what is the deal with Taiwan? It's a series of islands to the southeast of China and only a seventh of the size of the UK. So why would Beijing care about it? Is it just about resources or is it about something a bit deeper than that? I'm joined today by Rana Mitter, a historian of 20th century China and more, whose latest book is China's Good War, as well as Jessica Drun, a Taiwan and China analyst joining us from the States, who is a non-resident fellow at the Project 2049 Institute, a think tank that promotes American interests in the Indo-Pacific. We planned this podcast before the horrific train derailment which happened in Taiwan on Friday, which is yet another reason that Taiwan is in the news at the moment. But Rana, to start with, maybe you can give us a brief history lesson which elucidates a bit more on why China cares about Taiwan. So obviously it's a set of islands that's incredibly close to China and as a result of that will have had Chinese and migrations from other countries throughout millennia. But in the Qing Dynasty, it was part of China's territory. And the first time it left that was in 1895 when it was taken over by the Japanese. Can you tell us about those circumstances? Well, that's right, Cindy. Uh, Taiwan has been a place that actually, although it has stayed located, at least for the far past few million years in exactly the same place in the Pacific Ocean. On the other hand, its political status has kept changing because of its really quite changeable history. And in the modern era, the really big date is 1895. And that is the end point of a war that's still somewhat well remembered in, in China, not well remembered in the West, the first war between China and Japan. So this is not the great conflagration of, of World War Two, 40 years after that. This is a relatively smaller, mostly naval conflict between the Qing dynasty, the imperial dynasty of China, sometimes called the Manchu dynasty because of the ethnicity of its ruling class and the newly emergent Meiji Japanese state. In other words, the Japanese state that in the 1880s and 90s turned itself in a very short period of time from being essentially a relatively inward-looking, quite traditional society to being a highly modernised, highly mechanised, highly militarised society that was building its own empire. So Japan and China went to war in 1894-5. China lost. And essentially, as part of the reparations, the island of Taiwan was handed over to Japan. We have to remember, of course, the late 19th century was not a great time for China in terms of bits of its territory being hacked off or in other ways removed. Uh, we, the Brits, got there first, of course, uh, in the 1830s, 1840s with Hong Kong. But many other countries, France, Russia and others, were in on the game, uh, the great game, uh, sometimes people call it. And in this particular case, it was Japan that took over Taiwan. And basically, that situation lasted for 50 years. It was the end of World War II in 1945 that saw the end of that period. But it's it's just worth noting, because sometimes it's a little politically incorrect 
to say it, but this being spectator Chinese whispers, I think political incorrectness is what we're, we're, we're hoping for. A lot of Taiwanese people, particularly the older generation during that period, were not that hostile to the Japanese imperial mm. period. They didn't like being imperial citizens, let's not exaggerate. But on the other hand, it was not regarded as a massively brutal uh, occupation. And many of the things that emerged in that time, including the creation of a new Chinese and Japanese speaking urban middle class were actually regarded as being part of the modernization process by many of the Taiwanese Chinese of that period. And that led to a few anomalies. For instance, many Taiwanese Chinese fought in World War II, but they didn't fight on the Chinese side because China was one of the allies. They fought for the Japanese. And in the same sort of a way, it's also the case that even the first generation of Taiwan politicians really in the Cold War era um, including actually the first democratically elected president uh, back in, later in the, in the 1990s, Li Dong-Yu, were actually Japanese speakers first and foremost and made something almost of a joke of that being the case. Something which, as you can imagine, goes down very badly in the mainland. And then very briefly, just to, to say after that, 1945 sees the handing back of the island of Taiwan to the then Chinese government, the nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek. This is before the communists take over. That is regarded as a much darker, much more savage period, frankly, by many, many on the island itself, not least because on the 28th of February 1947, a date which is still notorious in Taiwan, essentially there was a rounding up and mass killings of many of the intellectuals, the political leaders, the thought leaders of the Chinese speaking but Taiwan indigenous native population. And that experience was essentially kind of covered up, a bit like Tiananmen Square in the mainland in 1989, you still can't talk about it openly in China. Well, that was true in Taiwan for about 40 years. Essentially, after the communists took over the mainland, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists came wholesale to Taiwan. They took over, they declared a state of martial law, and that state of martial law lasted all the way till 1987, nearly 40 years. So essentially, Taiwan then spent the Cold War as an anti-communist island under a state of emergency off the coast of mainland China. And that situation leading towards the present day really only begins to change. The modern history, although the contemporary Taiwan that we know today, really only begins to develop in the late 1980s. I couldn't have asked for a better whistle-stop tour of the last 100 years, Rana. Thank you so much. So let's talk about that moment in 1949. The nationalist government is nominally in power. Their capital is Nanjing. And they move from there when Nanjing is surrounded by the communists to the island of Taiwan. And that's where they've remained since then. And that's why Taiwan's official name is the Republic of China, because that was the China's name before 1949, before the communist takeover. And this is really important to get straight for listeners. So the Republic of China is Taiwan. The People's Republic of China is the communist China that's been there since 1949. So we'll talk about ROC and PRC here, but try not to make it too confusing. So today's PRC Chinese, the people in the mainland, joke that Taiwan is a renegade province because it never accepted that Taiwan wasn't part of its sovereignty. But clearly the government are completely serious about that, Rana. So how much of this is a chip on the shoulder of modern Chinese people and modern Chinese government about uh, the return of Taiwan, maybe closing of a chapter on that history of being invaded by colonial powers? Um, How much of that importance uh, is there? The Taiwan issue, the issue of the 
final unfinished business of the Cold War, if you want to put it that way, you know, the I was going to say the one island, but maybe you could say like three and a bit islands, because actually, as well as the main island of Taiwan itself, the two islands of Jinmen and Mazu, sometimes known as Quimoy and Matsu, quite, quite famous in Cold War history, are also under Taiwan jurisdiction, uh, Republic of China jurisdiction, even though they're literally just off the coast of, of Fujian province. But it is fair to say that they have been an immensely important element in the thinking of Beijing, in the thinking of the Chinese Communist Party, which rules from Beijing, except when they haven't been. So what I mean by that is that if you look at the stretch of period over the last 70 years or so, since the founding of the PRC, the People's Republic of China in Beijing, in the first decade or so of that rule under Chairman Mao, actually Taiwan and getting Taiwan back was a really important issue. There was a very live reason for that, apart from the principle of, of territorial sovereignty and all this sort of stuff, is because Chiang Kai-shek was alive and well, along with, you know, thousands and thousands of troops. And of course, the official recognition of the United Nations in those days, which Taiwan had as the Republic of China until 1971, it wasn't until 1971 that the mainland of China got its seat back in, in the UN. And along with figures like President Eisenhower, who were very, very keen to make sure that the communists didn't advance in Asia. So actually, Taiwan was something of a clear and present danger for the Beijing regime at that time. And it culminated at that era in the 1958 Taiwan Straits crisis, when essentially there were fears there might even be a war in the waters between the mainland and Taiwan, essentially a kind of mini case study in the wider Cold War at the time, a kind of early Vietnam, you might say. Didn't happen, of course, and that was partly because both sides realised that it was you know, not to their advantage to, uh, uh, to escalate the issue. And then it's very interesting to note that really for about 20, 25 years, perhaps even more than that. Of course, Beijing maintained its claim to Taiwan that this was an uh, inalienable part of China, that it would inexorably and inevitably be brought back into reunification. But they really didn't do very much about it at all. Mm. And throughout much of the 1980s and 90s, although the rhetoric began to uh, ramp up in, in, in various ways, even as late as 1992, which for some of us older people doesn't seem like that long ago, although for younger people it may seem like a historical era ago, there was a sort of uh, a consensus achieved between the mainland and the then rulers of, uh, of Taiwan, the, the Kuomintang Party, that in fact both sides would sort of agree to disagree, that you know there was going to be one China, but they didn't decide which side it was going to be, and that they would meanwhile work to try and do things like building up transport links, trade links. And that's where the process of the economic connection between Taiwan and China became much more notable. And even today, actually, China, the mainland of China, is actually Taiwan's major trading partner, which is very ironic considering the pressure between the, the two sides. But to finish the thought, the last few years, let's say the ooh, mid 2010s, let's say, basically since the ascendancy of the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, to the presidency of the Republic of China on Taiwan, as it's still officially called, but under the leadership of the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, because that party advocates greater separation, people say it's a pro-independence party. Actually, its leaders have always been a bit smarter than that. I sometimes find myself thinking of Nicola Sturgeon, although Nicola Sturgeon, I think, so far doesn't have Boris Johnson's missiles pointed uh, at her. Who knows? That might, <laughs> might, might change, but not, not, not so far. You know, if you think about Sc uh, Scotland uh, being a place where there's clearly a lot of manoeuvring going on about should we go for this separation now or later and so forth, in a much more existential way, in Taiwan, the DPP leadership have very much gone down the lines of, well, we are not part of China, but we're going to be quite careful about how we phrase that in case we provoke an attack. 
And the point being that that's quite recent, because as recently as the 2010s, under the previous president, Ma Ying-jeou, uh, who was a president of, the last president of the Kuomintang Party, the, the Nationalist Party, which originally was Chiang Kai-shek's, but has now democratised, become much more liberal, much more pluralist. But they did have a closer relationship with the mainland. And give an example, just what I'm talking about. In, I think, the year 2016, about a year after Ma Ying-jeou had left office, he met Xi Jinping. Not in China, not in Taiwan, but in Singapore. But it was the first meeting, I think, between the head of the Chinese nationalists, the Kuomintang, and the Chinese communists since Chairman Mao and Chiang Kai-shek himself met for negotiations in the city of Chongqing in southwest China in 1945. That's only 2016. So in relative terms, it was only five years ago that actually both sides thought they might have something to talk about. And very quickly, we've moved to a situation where actually the relationship between the Taiwan side and the mainland side is very, very chilly indeed, but it's happened quite quickly. Mm. And let's talk about that political divide. Jessica, um, when we're talking about Taiwan, as, as Rana mentioned, it did democratise in the 1980s, and before that it was under the sort of military rule by the Kuomintang, by the Nationalist Party. Since then, opposition parties have sprung up. The main opposition is Democratic Progressive Party, which is now in government. How does that political landscape look? What does the DPP believe versus the KMT? So... In recent years, I've found in my research that it seems that there's been more an alignment in the DPP and the KMT's policies. They both really focus on the Republic of China as an entity. The KMT, you know, as Rana said, has always said, you know, we represent the Republic of China. The DPP, though it had pro-independence leanings in its past, has amended its party charter to say that Taiwan is already independent. It's always been independent as the Republic of China, and therefore it doesn't need to formally declare or take the action of becoming independent. Is that a bit of a fudge on their side so that they don't have to do that act? Or does that actually make things worse? The act in itself, I think, would be viewed as a red line for China, though that gets fuzzy. So between the KMT and the CCP, the existing framework for talks that started under the Ma administration was the 1992 consensus. This supposedly grew out of a 1992 meeting in Hong Kong between the KMT and the CCP, though the concept in itself wasn't fully articulated as the 1992 consensus until then head of the Mainland Affairs Council, Su Chi, coined the term in 2000. I think it was 2000. The 1992 consensus is essentially that the CCP and the KMT will come to the table under a one-China framework as a common ground for discussions and negotiations between the two sides. For the CCP, it stops there. It's just one China, and that is their bottom line. They won't agree to talk to Taiwan officials unless they agree to one China. On the KMT side, they said that in their view, it's one China respective interpretation so that the PRC can think that their one China is the PRC, whereas the KMT holds that their, their interpretation is the ROC. But if you get in the weeds about it, they have never, like, the PRC has never commented on the KMT's view that there's respective interpretations, while the KMT has never brought to the table that they hold these views. The respective interpretation bit is only for domestic audiences. So then, essentially, there isn't fully a consensus of both, both sides don't really have a common ground. So in my view, the 1992 consensus was more a political myth that there was a common baseline, but it largely grew out of the political will of both sides to come to the table. 
they're willing to, I guess, table their disagreements on one China for the sake of being able to talk and negotiate. And this is largely built off the common history that Rana has already described. With the DPP, this is a non-starter because their base would not agree to a one China in that sense. And the DPP is now in government and Tsai Ing-wen, the president, has won her first re-election. So she's in for her second term now. Jessica, does that mean that the Taiwanese people as a majority also disagree with this 1992 consensus, that they don't think that they are one China, as it were? I think, so it's a little bit more complicated than that. Taiwan identity politics is a pretty good indicator of um, what direction Taiwan domestic politics will go in. But for Taiwanese, the concept of being Chinese is does not necessarily tie to the PRC. It could tie to a Chinese ethnicity, Chinese culture, Han culture. But since Taiwan's democratization, public opinion surveys have shown that the trend is growing towards Taiwanese identifying as uniquely Taiwanese, as you know, feeling a bond to the island itself and no connection to the mainland. So if you say, for example, there was a 2019 Pew analysis that found that 66% of Taiwanese surveyed identified solely as Taiwanese, um, as opposed to just Chinese or Taiwanese and Chinese. And then a 2020 Taiwan election democratization study found that 70% identified as Taiwanese. And people that identify as uniquely Taiwanese tend to support the DPP and pan-green parties. Mm. That's really interesting. I did an episode recently looking at Hong Kong's history and a similar trend is there where Hong Kong youths are much more likely to just identify as Hong Kongers rather than Hong Kong Chinese like their parents or grandparents might. Rana, is that partly why China is now feeling the pressure a little bit more? Because the longer you let these renegade provinces in quotation marks go away, the less they feel Chinese. I think it is that. And there's a variety of other things that actually come together, I think, in exactly as, as, as Jessica is saying. I think the problem on the mainland side is that they are finding themselves in a political vice that was not perhaps quite as strong or quite as relevant even five years ago and certainly 10 years ago, which is this. Essentially, the idea that China could maintain a whole variety of different types of regimes and identities within one political structure, while a very, very difficult one to maintain, was plausible because of Hong Kong essentially being left alone for about 20 years. And this is the argument that was always made, not least from Beijing, that, look, you know, we took over um, Hong Kong in 1997 and everyone does what exactly what they want there. And, you know, there's no, there's no real difference with what went before. I mean, there were areas where clearly at the edges things were actually being chipped away. But overall, the Hong Kong of the early 2000s was perfectly recognisable as the same place as in the late colonial era, in a way that's simply not the case, certainly over the last year or, or so. And because of the, the new crackdown within China itself in which border areas in general are being targeted, this has made Taiwan very, very nervous and has meant that the political discourse in Taiwan has become much more about keeping themselves safe from getting anywhere close to the mainland. And this, of course, has then ramped up the temperature in Beijing, saying, you don't get any choice as to whether you want to be close to us or not. We're coming to get you whether you like it or not, which, of course, is not a great basis for any kind of serious discussion. I remember talking recently to someone uh, I mean, on Zoom based in, in Beijing who's, you know, think tank type, quite liberal minded, you know, understands these issues well and, and saying, well, look, what is it? What's the offer that you think that Beijing can make to Taiwan to make them think that becoming part of a shared identity actually works? And he said, you know what? 
that's what keeps me awake at night. I, I have no idea or words to that effect. And that, I think, is one of the things that's driving the problems with identity. The same thing's happening in Hong Kong. The problem is that Beijing, as so often is the case, particularly you know, in the last few years under Xi Jinping, has moved to a scenario by which it thinks that a very top-down imposition of identity, the idea that everyone will be the same, speak the same language, you know, Mandarin as opposed to any dialect, that people will share the same political views, of course, to do with the, the Chinese Communist Party, is going to bring people together. I would say that actually for a large part of the aspiring middle classes who are Han ethnic Chinese in the mainland of China, a lot of them are quite happy with the social contract. The idea that there's this huge unhappiness with the Chinese government in the mainland, I think, is just not true. Although, you know, you have family connections that could tell me better on that, that, that Cindy. But where it really doesn't work is the borders. I mean, Xinjiang is the most extreme case that we've been hearing about. But actually, there's protests in, in Mongolia about Mongol language teaching being pushed down. The Hong Kong case, you know, Hong Kong is about a lot of things. But it's also about Cantonese identity. It's about the ability to actually portray yourself as being a Hong Konger. And all of this is feeding in Taiwan politics into a place where even the KMT, the Kuomintang nationalists, who previously would have been more, quotes, pro-China, actually can't be that pro Chinese at all because their opinion poll ratings are slowly getting not only lower and lower, but also skew much more towards an older demographic. I mean, Johnny Jiang, who's the recently chosen head of the, the KMT, is relatively young, he's in his late 40s, but he has his work cut out to work out what an acceptable message is from the KMT that is that would both get people to vote for it democratically in Taiwan and look to Beijing as if it's something that they could talk about. So it's a real dilemma on all sides. We're starting to see it play out, and the trends in Taiwan domestic politics are probably, you know, more, moving even more in the direction towards policies that will come out of this uniquely Taiwanese identity. Um, for example, there's been a few discussions on constitutional reform through a number of proposed amendments. Some probably won't gain traction, um, but the big one that both parties are in support of is adjusting the voting age. Both the KMT and the DPP support lowering Taiwan's voting age, and this is from 20 to 18. And as I said earlier, you know, most of the people that identify uniquely as Taiwanese tend to trend younger. So if this passes, then you're introducing a major swath of youth voters into the electorate. And so, you know, you have 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds. And this is likely to generate a lot more votes for the Pam Green Pant and will impact how parties approach elections and policies in the future. This will also benefit third parties, which mostly lean green, that emerged in recent years out of the Sunflower Movement student protest, um, such as the New Power Party and the Taiwan State Building Party. So if you were to view, you know, Taiwan politics on a spectrum and have one end be unification and one end be independence, with, you know, these shifts in policies and these shifts in identity, you're starting to see the the middle ground shift more towards independence, and that will have bearing on, you know, Taiwan politics as a whole and on cross-strait relations. And it's worth saying that the Green Party, in a sense, is not the climate change friendly party as it is in the West so often, but the DPP that we've been speaking about so often with the KMT known as the Blues. Rana, you mentioned the recognition, international rec- recognition for the for the Beijing government that happened in the 70s, uh, was switching over from the Taiwan government. How significant was that moment in Taiwan's history? Because I think listeners will know that it, it the row over whether or not it's a country, China will really throw its weight around to make sure that's not recognised as a country by anything from crisp manufacturers to airlines to governments. Um, So how significant was that moment of switching diplomatic recognition? 
The 1970s as a whole actually is the decade when Taiwan's diplomatic status changes really strongly. 1971 at the beginning of that decade when essentially the United Nations seat, and remember it's not just any old UN seat, it is a permanent five Security Council members seat, so having the China seat really matters in that case. I sometimes like to tease my Chinese diplomatic friends, I hope they're still friends, by asking if they give thanks to Chiang Kai-shek every morning that the Beijing government gets to have that veto right on the UN Security Council. They usually look a bit sour and say no, they don't think about that very very much but historically of course it's uh, it's true and 1979 perhaps even more important that's the date when the united states finally officially you know post nixon in china and all that after several years switched diplomatic recognition actually under jimmy carter to Beijing. But of course, with a sting in the tail from Beijing's point of view, the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979, which does not provide a formal alliance between the US and Taiwan, that's important to know, not least for present day politics, but does give the US um, the capacity to enable Taiwan to defend itself. And that makes a real difference. But the diplomatic de-recognition is something that actually is a process that's been happening over a longer period. It was already underway in a sense, even in the 1960s, because a lot of other newer Global South countries, third world, we would have said in, in those days, were keen to essentially get China recognised. And of course, it ultimately did make sense. And also in more recent years, obviously, there's been a real push in recent years by Beijing to try and exclude Taiwan, particularly under the DPP from international membership of various organisations. But actually, the number of diplomatic allies, I mean, formal ties uh, between countries that recognise the ROC and other countries has, has really been reducing for decades. I think the very last major one was South Africa back in the 1990s, and since then it's mostly small Central American countries and uh, countries in the Pacific. I, I actually had a look at the Taiwan News this morning, and um, one of the more officially inclined papers had the fantastic headline, uh, Taiwan-Palau ties remain strong, Palau being one of the tiny Pacific islands which Taiwan recognises. Let me just give you one final illustration, because I think it makes the case very nicely as to how this change has happened. If you go to the Grand Hotel in Taipei, which I recommend, because it's a lovely hotel, you'll see there's lots of pictures of, you know, the grand things that have happened in the hotel. And when you start the sort of the picture gallery, the photo gallery in the lobby, it's got pictures of, you know, President Eisenhower meeting Madame Chiang Kai-shek and Chiang Kai-shek and all these great Cold War figures at the start. By the time you walk right round to the end, which is pictures from the, the early 2000s, it's like some celebrity chef off the cookery channel uh, from, you know, came and visited and cooked cake in the kitchens of the Grand Hotel. Because, you know, the number of major diplomatic visitors who want to be seen being photographed officially in Taiwan has just reduced massively in that period. And I'm afraid the, the, the move from Eisenhower to the cookery channel gives you an idea of how the uh, uh, diplomatic uh, decline of... Diplomatic decline of Taiwan as an official power has gone. Yes. But don't forget its soft power and its capacity to project itself as a liberal democracy in Asia has become stronger and stronger, and that is Taiwan's biggest card. Uh, Jessica, how do Taiwanese people remember the 70s, so this, this start of the decline of diplomatic power, and how do they speak about it today? Clearly in all functional ways, or at least most, it operates like a country. From my understanding, you know, they felt that they were rejected by the international community and left out of, I think, the present day discussion is that, you know, they act like a country, they function like a country, and they want all the benefits that come with it. But they also want to contribute to the international community. And that's that's a big one that, you know, Taiwan has made big strides in global health, for example, you know, most recently, how successful it's handled the COVID-19 pandemic. And it wants to be able to bring its experts to the table and in international organizations to share this knowledge with the world, but they're kept outside the door because of the PRC. 
Yes, of course. And Taiwan prides itself on being one of the first places to have realized that this pandemic was building in Wuhan. And then a few months later, WHO representative was infamously had a laptop malfunction when asked about Taiwan's status. So, you know, I, I can imagine that would be, that would be a source of grievance. Is there tension with the PRC uh, in the political sphere and in the public opinion sphere because of this cold shouldering? So from the, from the viewpoint of the Taiwan public, it comes off as, why are you not offering us these same opportunities, you know, to be a global citizen and are keeping us, you know, at a hand's distance? And it really comes into like, well, if there is unification, then will China be a benevolent leader? Or will, will the people in Beijing be benevolent or will they continue punishing Taiwan. And, you know, the Hong Kong example is not a good one for them. Mm. And let's talk about Taiwan's democratization in a little bit more detail. So, Rana, as you've alluded to, the first few decades of the uh, the ROC on Taiwan, uh, it was ruled under the party's iron grip. It democratized in the 80s, which is quite recent. Jessica, it's often said that Chinese culture and Confucian values or whatever it is are unsuited to liberal democracy. Does Taiwan confound that? Because after all, it is still over 95% Han Chinese. It's Mandarin is the official language. When I went to Taiwan, as opposed to Hong Kong, for example, I was surprised at how much more Chinese, how much more like the mainland it was compared to Hong Kong. So Chinese culture is still very strong there. But democracy thrives. So I guess I'm of two minds. You could say, you know, based on the ethnically Han population, Taiwan serves as a good example that democracy could thrive in a culturally Chinese locale. But that said, I think, you know, a lot of Taiwanese these days would push back and against that label of being culturally Chinese and being labeled as a Chinese democracy, right? Because they want to elevate that, you know, Taiwan's democracy is unique. It, it grew out of a democratization movement that was very local, that was very Taiwan-centric, and that, you know, there are elements of its population that have no ties to China, such as the indigenous population, and that, you know, Taiwan is multicultural, and that is the strength of its democracy, not that it's not, they don't want to hone in on it being exclusively Chinese so to speak. It's worth making a comparison actually with another country in the region, which is South Korea. And South Korea also, like Taiwan, is a sort of mid-sized country, which went from really, you know, being relatively pretty poor in the 1940s and 1950s to a huge economic miracle, uh, you know, before mainland China became the economic miracle, it was Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan. And also both Taiwan and South Korea contemporaneously had democratization movements in the 70s and 80s with both the same successes and, and flaws. I would say that in both countries, what makes them similar is that you could argue that their, you know, indigenous political cultures have not always been very friendly towards uh, democracy because they were both essentially colonies of Japan during much of the early 20th century. And while Japan had democracy for a while at home, it didn't extend it that much to its uh, colonies. There are some other countries in the world which uh, have a, a similar record, it must be uh, said, but I can't think of any at the, uh, at the moment, obviously. <laughs> but beyond that, well, exactly what Jessica was saying. It's indigenous change that really made a difference. So, you know, in mm. South Korea, there was a huge division between North and South, the Gwangju Massacre, very late in the day in uh, 1980, uh, was one of the sort of the Tiananmen Square, you might say, of South Korea, but in their case with a democratizing endpoint rather than going back to authoritarianism. But in Taiwan, it was what's called the Formosa Movement. You know, it's the old-fashioned Western name for the island of Taiwan. 
which is essentially a grassroots cultural and political movement that pushed back against the dominance of the, of the, of the KMT. And one of the things that was very strong in that, and still remains so, was the idea of indigenous Taiwan people, both ethnic Chinese, but those who spoke Fujinese, Hokkienese, and you know, had non-Mandarin Chinese dialects as the way that they spoke, and a grouping that's relatively small in terms of population, but I would say, but Jessica would agree, I don't know, relatively very prominent in democratic Taiwanese politics, which is the Aboriginal Malayo-Polynesian indigenous groupings. Uh, and they are regarded, I mean, they, I think they have reserved seats in parliament, but actually quite a few people have really pointed to that indigenous movement. You might compare it to kind of, you know, Native Americans or the Australian Aboriginal movement, these other sorts of political movements. That was also part of the idea of the push forward because the central idea and this is, I think, still very true in, in Taiwan's democracy, perhaps more in a way than it is in, in South Korea's, is that it's about pluralism. It's not just about a majoritarian type of voting where basically, you know, a 50% plus one gets you power over everything. It's about saying, look, there are people who came over from the mainland in 1949 and their story still matters. And there are people who've been here, in quote marks, since the 18th century and their story matters. And there are people who've been here for 14,000 years and their story matters as well. And unless you hear all of those stories, you don't have a democracy. And the problem, of course, with the mainland is that you can say lots of things about the, the mainland, the way it does politics. But the idea of hearing pluralist, diverse voices that may disagree with each other, not ethnic minorities wearing, you know, funny costumes on a, a New Year TV show and dancing and singing and then being swept off stage so that the Han can get over, on with everything, but genuine discussion about real identity politics. That's something Taiwan, I think, does rather well. And it's really hard to see how that fits into the way that the PRC does politics at the moment. Rana, that's really interesting because, of course, so much of our discussion so far has been focused on the Han Chinese migrations into Taiwan and Taiwan's relationship with the Han Chinese-dominated PRC. But, of course, you, you're, you rightly point out that there is this incredibly important political force there, and I think that's worth another podcast almost at some point. Jessica, does Taiwanese democracy still have wobbly moments, given that it's only been a democracy for, let's say, 40 years? That's, that's a really short period of time. Does it feel like a mature democracy having seem it and also American democracy, for example? I think in terms of how robust Taiwan's democracy is, if you were to play that out in voter turnout, I think, you know, it's a major success story. Um, they have their elections on weekends. And, you know, if you've ever been to an election observation, it's it's like a, I don't want to say holiday per se, but it's like this, you know, every people are lining up. They're very patient. They have, they're ready to vote. And, you know, all the food carts start lining up outside the voter registration areas, you know, to make sure that people are fed and that, you know, also, I guess, capitalism. But at night, you have volunteers and they count the votes by hand. So, you know, one thing that struck me was all the talk about, you know, China potentially hacking Taiwan's election. I'm like, no, there's there's a disinformation element in the lead up to the election and, you know, political pressure. But they count their ballots by hand and, you know, there's volunteers at each of the voting locations tallying. There's multiple people tallying each vote as they read out loud. And it's it's actually very fascinating and, you know, just to observe. But that said, there is, you know, corruption as there is in every uh, democracy in the political parties. Can't think of an example off the top of my head. It must be said over a longer period of time, and it's controversial, but of course, um, the second democratic president, the first from the DPP, Chen Shui-bian, was prosecuted for corruption and, and convicted, in fact. 
Yes, and Rana, is this a, yet another reason why Beijing cares so much about Taiwan? That it's showing it up almost, you know, it, it's doing democracy in a way that the CCP wants to say that is not suited to the guoting, the national spirit of of China, as well as its economy, which we've we've alluded to, is one of the Asian tigers of the twentieth century uh, with the economic miracle, and then something like the Taiwanese semiconductor uh, manufacturer, which is world leading and is something that China wants to be world leading in, but hasn't quite done it. So, is that jealousy a part of um, why China wants Taiwan back as well? It may be controversial to say so, but I'm not actually sure that. Worrying or even being jealous of the democracy in Taiwan actually is the major reason. I think it's both more and less than that. I think there are two major reasons in the end why Beijing has become kind of obsessed by Taiwan. One actually is very very pragmatic. It is to do with exactly what you just mentioned. Things like you know the semiconductor industry and also more broadly the strategic usefulness of Taiwan. If the mainland, if Beijing controlled Taiwan, then that makes much more of the Asia Pacific region reachable. By China's rapidly growing military, so you know Japan becomes relatively more vulnerable in a more conventional war, and this is one of the other reasons why many of America's allies in the region are extremely nervous about the idea of Taiwan being taken by China. Although, without going into huge details, we're not doing you know, military studies today. Most military analysts, even now, say that it would still be a pretty major undertaking for China to actually launch a full, full-scale military invasion of Taiwan. So, I think it's. Unlikely that's very you know much on the cards in, in in the very near future. The other reason, though, I think is 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 much more basic than the idea that it's a democracy which is making Beijing look bad. It's just this increasing obsession, which actually is a historical obsession, with the idea of guoqi, national humiliation. Taiwan was taken away by another country, first of all Japan, and then it you know China briefly got it back, but not under the communists. And it is basically the idea. Really, which has become a very, very strong one in the modern era, that China has these very closely, clearly fixated boundaries, and that Hong Kong is part of that, and Xinjiang is part of that, and Inner Mongolia is part of that. Until 1945, there was still a claim actually on Outer Mongolia by the old、uh, nationalist government, but Mr. Stalin helpfully organised a referendum in、uh, Mongolia, which you'd be pleased to hear, Cindy, was won for the independence forces by 484,000 votes to zero. So it was、uh, clearly done under clean, clean, clean and clean and clear circumstances. So Outer Mongolia, I think, sadly has has gone not not to come back. But I think it's. Just the question of that unfinished business of China's territory. In a weird way, if Taiwan continued to be a democracy of some sort, although I have no doubts that after Hong Kong, people would have great wariness about what sort of democracy it would be. But if it has a different system from the mainland, in some sense, I don't think Beijing would be in the end too worried about that. But it really, really wants to get sovereignty back over the island to be able to say that actually, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, has finally brought China's territory. Together, and I think that's more important for them than the system that actually exists on the island itself. How much of this is an inherent part of President Xi's China dream? You know, this idea of the rejuvenation of the Chinese people, midwife by him. I, I think it's a very large part of the idea of the China dream, and you know, there's a whole variety of different terms that we've been hearing from the Chinese theoretical apparatus, you might call it, which of course is、uh, part of the propaganda ministry in parts.、So、by the way, the, the word propaganda, Xuanzhuan,、uh, is not necessarily a negative word in the Chinese context. It's a perfectly respectable word in, in that context. So. Territorial unification is what you might call a sort of marquee good. In other words, whichever ruler actually does that, 
you know, if it's Xi Jinping, he will clearly go down in the annals alongside, you know, Deng Xiaoping and Mao and all these other really big figures in recent Chinese history. So there's clearly a kind of win in terms of the ideology of it in that sense. But it also fits into this much wider sense. Uh, I mean, in 2017, at the 19th Party Congress, there's a major speech by Xi Jinping in which he talked about China being in a new era. In other words, one where it was going to be more global, where it was going to essentially be a leader that spoke out in the world rather than being this sort of discrete power that sits in the background. Compared to that, I mean, Taiwan is very important, I think, in, in the mind of China's leaders today, and not just Xi Jinping, by the way, but others too. But actually, it's all part of this wider sense that actually China has finally found its moment. One word that you kept hearing over and over again a couple of weeks ago in the Chinese reporting uh, or the Chinese social media discussion of the Anchorage conference, the very bad-tempered one uh, between China and America, was confidence, zixin, you know, this idea that finally China is getting its moment on the world stage. And I think the Taiwan story has to be seen as part of that much, much bigger and much longer range narrative that's being constructed now. Rana, that's a really good place to end on because it brings us all the way back to the beginning when we were talking about the history of this complicated set of islands. Rana and Jessica, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.